<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Harvin here with you. Apparently, we have a stage two fascism problem. This, uh, according to uh, historian Robert Paxton, he's not a, uh, a lefty or a righty, he's a historian. And he says the Metropolitan Republican Club's decision to invite the far-right Proud Boys to an event last week has crossed a dangerous line that puts America one step closer to embracing fascism. He said skinheads, for example, have become the functional equivalent of Hitler's essay in Mussolini's Squadristi. And he said if important elements of the conservative elite begin to cultivate or even tolerate them as weapons against some internal enemies, such as immigrants or liberals, we are approaching stage two of fascism. He went to New York and acted out the assassination back in 1960 of the leader of the Japanese Socialist Party. He was d doing a political debate on TV, and this uh, young man came up and stabbed him and killed him on live television. And that is what these right-wingers acted out for the Republicans in New York. Something weird going on here. Is it time to admit that we have a serious right-wing death cult problem in the United States. You know, whether it's uh, Heather Heyer being murdered in Charlottesville during a right-wing march, or whether it's Dylan Roof murdering a number of people in, a, in the school. I mean, this goes all the way back to Tim McVeigh. Left-wing violence has pretty much not happened in the United States since the weather underground went away in 19, what, 69, 70, 71. But right-wing violence is exploding, literally hundreds of examples of it over the last 20 years. You know, the, according to the FBI, we've got twice as many people killed by right-wingers as we do by Muslims or any other group. If you just, you know, if you take 9-11 out of that equation, which I realize some people don't want to do, but, you know, it really was a one-off. And then we've got this historian, Robert Paxton, saying that when the Republican Party, when a, when a po mainstream political party does outreach to hard-right, violent people, that is stage two of fascism. We've already passed stage one and, and we're into stage two and that's, you know, pretty spooky stuff too. 
And then, and then on top of this, we just we just learned that back when the uh, the Patriot Prayer guys, uh, Joy Gibson and, and friends here in Portland, were uh, confronting the uh, Antifa protesters down in downtown Portland, that they had a cache of loaded firearms at the top of a parking garage, and we're talking about a sniper and stuff. I mean, you add all this stuff up, and it's like, what the hell is going on in this country? And and these guys are explicit in their support of Donald Trump. The, you know, so so anyhow, we we had that debate in the last hour, and we've been we've been talking about that. There are a couple other things though that I would like to talk about. Uh, Ed Young is writing in the Atlantic in their science section that in fewer than 130,000 years, we humans have sawed off the most evolutionarily distinct branches from our family tree. Now, if you think of evolution as kind of the opposite of entropy, entropy is where, you know, things just, you know, uh, crumble into disorder and chaos over time. And evolution is where things become more sophisticated and elegant and detailed and, and complex over time. And the peak of evolution, you could argue, and there was the most recent products of evolution, uh, principally, are mammals. And what are we doing? Uh, we are killing mammals all over the world. I mean, just, you know, wildly. Uh, the, the, this, this guy who killed an entire family of baboons is one of the stories that's out there right now. You know, proudly posed with a photo of little, literally mom, dad, and a half a dozen kids little tiny, all the way down to a little baby baboon. He shot all of them and thinks, hey, I'm a great hunter. I mean, this is nuts. And, you know, over 300 species of mammals have gone extinct since the last ice age. Now, you know, some of those went extinct when, when humans first encountered them. You know, like here in North America, the mammoths, the, the woolly rhinos, the, the three-toed sloths. And of the 5,500 remaining mammalian species, a fully a quarter of them are right now considered endangered species. We are killing off our, uh, what is it, kingdom, phylum, order, class, genus, what is it, the order, mammalia? I don't, I don't know if it's an order or a phylum or whatever it is, but, but in any case, we're, we're killing off our, our nearest relatives in this incredibly rapid rate. And, and some of us are just insanely enthusiastic about it. Well, you know, if you look at the mammals on Earth right now, what you find is that the vast majority of them, well over 50 percent, I've heard, you know, I've, I've, I've read in some places that it's actually well over 90 percent. I can't document that. I can't assert that. But it's certainly well over 50 percent of the mammals on Earth right now are either us or animals that we are growing to eat. In other words, they're not, you know, the wild things. I, you could argue we are. But, you know, cows and pigs certainly are not. And, and sheep and goats and whatnot that are, you know, being grown all around the world for food. And this is, this is you know, another, another example of the incredible destruction we're wreaking on this planet at the same time that we are altering the atmosphere in ways that are going to uh, be making life 
you know, progressively more and more hostile for, for uh, you know, for all of us, essentially. And, uh, you know, this, this guy, his name is Blake Fisher. Uh, he says, I shot a whole family of baboons. This, this is what he said on his uh, Instagram photo or Twitter photo or whatever it was of him squatting amid loose uh, red dirt and rocks. Blake Fisher posed for the picture, a triumphant grin stretched across his face, arranged in front of him, resembling a macabre family picture, are the bodies of four baboons. The smallest one's head is lolled back, its mouth slightly agape, crimson blood stains its abdomen, quiver of arrows is in the foreground. Uh, the photo landed Fisher, one of Idaho's, uh, he's, he's, by the way, a fish and game commissioner in Idaho, or he was. And uh, because of this picture, they said, eh, you know, maybe you should, maybe you should resign. <laughs> you know, which apparently he did. But, you know, what have we come to? What kind of, what kind of, what kind of beings are we, are we behaving like? And what does this say about us? What does this say about our future? What does this say about, you know, where we've come from, where we're going and, and, and what we can do on this planet. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff. I would argue that the way that we're treating the other mammals on this planet, and, and, and frankly, birds and, and whatnot, and there was just a report uh, last night, I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me, uh, I caught it as I was reading the news about how, wow, thank you, uh, about how in, um, I believe it was uh, a part of Australia, uh, the insects are vanishing. Well, we've talked on this program a number of times. I mean, I keep getting calls from people, particularly long-haul truckers who listen to us on Sirius XM or, you know, over the air on some of our larger stations, um, saying, you know, 30 years ago, when I drove through these, these parts of the country during this time of the year, my, you know, I had to stop every couple hours and clean my windshield from the bugs. In fact, gas stations used to have, you know, I worked at a gas station as a teenager, and what did I do? I pumped gas, but what did you do when you pumped the gas? You squeegeed the guy's windshield. Why? Because there were dead bugs all over it. There's no more dead bugs. And, and as a consequence of that, the bugs that eat the bugs and the birds that eat the bugs are dying out. I mean, we're killing the planet. And we need to acknowledge this. And we need to acknowledge that we're doing it in part for some really bad reasons. I mean, you know, eating enormous amounts of meat not only kills the planet, it's killing us. It's not healthy. But on top of that, you've got this, this mentality, this, this, the, you know, which, which uh, is literally biblical. But you find it in all the world's major religions. And, you know, because it's basically, you know, that the, the God or the gods, you know, created us to control everything. And so we're just, you know, we're just taking charge, dominion over the planet. And that, that kind of psychology, that, that, that you know, top-down, hierarchical, we're the Lord gods of everything, and everything else is either food for us, or, you know, that then translates into, oh, well, you know, this race is better than that race, or this nation is better than that nation, and therefore, because it's better, it has the right to control them. You know, the same way that we have the right to control other mammals or go out and shoot families of baboons because, we're, gee, we're smarter than them. If we don't start to acknowledge that we are part of the web of life on this planet, and I mean fundamentally acknowledge that, like start talking about it in kindergarten, that, that we are not separate from the web of life. We are a product of the web of life on this planet, and we are dismantling that web 
We are dismantling life on this planet. And that's putting us at threat. And then we're using that same mentality to basically dominate other human beings violently, which is, of course, putting us at threat. We, we need to reboot somehow our religious perspectives, our morality, and our perspective on this stuff. Bill in Kentucky, what's up? I uh, appreciate it. I got a quick comment. I just want to tie what you're saying today about the elites trying to destroy our, our, our country and our, our uh, situation uh, with what you said yesterday about the, uh, them wanting us to live more so in the Gilded Age. I think you're being generous. I believe they want us to be, uh, live more so in a feudalistic society going back several several hundred years. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree. And and that's that, in fact, in my book, Screwed, I, I lay this whole thing out, that basically what's going on here is neo-feudalism, a new form of feudalism. And, you know, in the old feudalism, you were literally owned by the lord or the baron or the king or the prince or whoever happened to own the land that you lived on. They, yeah. they literally owned you right down to the point of deciding that who could marry whom and, you know, all your property. They, they owned your clothes. They owned absolutely everything. Um, you know, now they don't need to exercise control at that level. Instead, we do it through things like debt and, you know, raising the cost of housing, raising the cost of medicine, raising the cost of education while suppressing wages. And it, functionally, it's the same thing. You've got people who are living basically in terror of, of what, you know, the, the wealthy people can do to them economically. And, yes. and, and then you wonder why people are rising up on the left, on the right, all over the place. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, everybody. Well, not, I, I, don't worry, I don't wonder at all. I, I realize what's going on. I mean, I, I've, I'm, I'm about your age. I retired uh, a couple of years ago, and I realized that I could not live near a metro area. So I moved out to which is, Nifley, which is uh, two hours south of Louisville, two and a half hours uh, south uh, west of Lexington. Mm. So I'm out in the country and I bought land so I could grow my own crops and graze some animals. So because I don't I don't believe that uh, this country has much left, you know, much time left. Well, if we keep not, going, I'm, if I'm we keep going down the road, we're going down, Bill, I can't disagree with you. Yeah, I'm not a prepper, but, you know, I still look at some of their ideas and say, you know, these things are, you know, there's a possibility of yeah. Terrible things happening. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. Bill, thank you for uh, for your contribution to the conversation. Richard in Chicago. Hey, Richard, what's up? Oh, hello. Um, I was uh, calling about, uh, let me turn my radio down, the conversation about, you know, fascists, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, to me, it, it really boils down to the way um, Trump is handling his, his these rallies, you know, throw people out, these, you know, beat them up. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people, no one's arrested there. There was a guy that... Uh, fellow was being escorted out and jumped out and hit him and you know yeah. they arrested the guy that was hit you know the, the, the right i think it's wholly correct about the rise of people pointing guns at federal officers at the bundy ranch right. uh, and, and the militias but it's, it's i think i'd focus on his conduct and the people that are there that he brings people up on the stage who beat people up mm. he brought up two guys you know i mean what is you know how can that this fellow that you had on blame the, the left so much i mean 
having the courage to stand in front of, we used to stand in front of the police during the Vietnam War protests. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, if you're no, if no one's there, then no one knows there's any kind of resistance. So I, I don't know what I'm adding to the conversation, but I just think uh, it really. So your sense of it is that Trump's tone, his, his, the, the, the stuff that Trump does and says at the rallies is feeding this. It's the bottom yeah, line. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah I, mean, it's I, I, I absolutely agree. And it, and it concerns right, me tremendously. Don't ask him about it. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and it's one of the least discussed things in the media is, you know, how Donald Trump is inciting right wing violence. Uh, Richard, thank you. Excellent point. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Is this just a hiccup in the road and everything's going to be cool? Or are we literally sliding into something that looks like a fascistic state? BlindsGalore.com was the first place you could buy custom window treatments online. And because of that, they know what they're doing. They've been doing this for over 20 years and have covered over 2 million windows and know exactly how to get you the right blinds at the right price. They make it easy. They made it easy for Louise and me to go in and order. It was a breeze. It will be for you, too. Blinds Galore's products are hand-built from scratch, delivered right to your door, and created just for your windows. Their expert team is happy to help you every step of the way, either online or over the phone. Plus, they have the industry's best guarantee. If you don't like your custom blinds or shades for any reason, wrong color, you measured wrong, you don't like the style, you can exchange it for another covering for free. Blinds Galore will even set you up with 15 free samples and free shipping on top of the free expertise. It doesn't get any better than that. Blinds Galore makes it easy to get the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Go check out BlindsGalore.com and let them know we sent you. That's BlindsGalore.com. I present your president. In addition to his um, shortcomings, he has demonstrated his incompetence, hatred of women, and lack of self-control on Twitter again. This is she's responding to Trump's tweet where he calls Stormy Daniels horse face. And then she says, and perhaps a penchant for bestiality. Game on, tiny. <laughs> yes, game on, tiny. The terrorist threat confronting the United States. This is the executive assistant director of the FBI, Dale Watson, testifying that the, the United States faces significant challenges from domestic terrorists. In fact, between 1980 and 2000, the FBI recorded 335 incidents or suspected incidents of terrorism in this country. Of these, 247 were attributed to domestic terrorists, while 88 were determined to be international in nature. And then, you know, he goes into this long uh, kind of detailed thing about basically uh, the vast majority of these are, are uh, from uh, what are called right-wing terror groups. The, you know, the dark and constant rage, Anti-Defamation League, 25 years of right-wing terrorism in the United States. And uh, they start out, you know, in March of 2017, a white supremacist from Maryland, James Harris Jackson, traveled to New York City with the intention of launching a series of violent attacks on black men to discourage white women from having relationships with black men. After several days, Jackson chose his first victim, a 66-year-old black homeless man, Timothy Kaufman. Jackson later uh, allegedly admitted that he had stabbed Kaufman with a small, small sword he'd brought with him, describing the murder as a practice run. And then, you know, it, it goes on for over a century and a half since burning Kansas of the 1850s and the Ku Klux Klan of the 1860s. Right-wing terrorism has been an unwelcome feature of the American landscape. Yet today, many people are very, barely aware it exists. And most people don't recognize its frequency or scope. 
To illustrate the threat of right-wing terrorism in the United States, the Anti-Defamation League Center on Extremism has compiled a list of 150 right-wing terrorist acts, attempted acts, plots, and conspiracies from the last 25 years. This is 93 through 2017. These include terrorist incidents from a wide variety of white supremacists, from neo-Nazis to Klansmen to racist skinheads, as well as incidents connected to anti-government extremists, such as militia groups, sovereign citizens, and tax protesters. The list also includes incidents of anti-abortion terror, as well as from other smaller right-wing extremist movements. And this, I mean, it's just like, this is what's going on. This is uh, a new study. A majority of terrorists who have attacked America are not Muslims. Uh, the, well, of course. I mean, you know, we've, we've figured this out. You know, they got uh, one off with, uh, you know, with 9-11. But, you know, right-wing extremists, uh, here's another one. Right-wing extremists are a bigger threat to America than ISIS. This is from uh, Newsweek by Kurt Eichenwald, the New York Times reporter. And, uh, you know, he's telling the story. <clears throat> Excuse me. Inside a storefront Chinese restaurant in upstate New York, neon light from a multicolored window sign glowed in the face of an extremist plotting mass murder. He had been seeking backing for his attack, and at this small establishment in Scotia was meeting with a man who had agreed to take part in his scheme to build a radiation device, a weapon of mass destruction that would slowly and painfully kill anyone who walked near it. The man who devised the attack told his confederate, Everything with respiration would be dead by morning. How much sweeter could there be than a big stack of smelly bodies? Yeah, it turned out the guy was talking to an FBI informant, so he didn't pull this off. But, I mean, this is, this is just a, a Kurt Eichenwald. The problem is getting worse, although few outside of law enforcement know it. Multiple confidential sources notified the FBI last year that militia members have been conducting surveillance on Muslim schools, community centers, and mosques in nine states for what one informant described as, quote, operational purposes. Informants also identified, notified for federal law enforcement that Mississippi militia extremists discussed kidnapping and beheading a Muslim, then posting the video of the decapitation on the Internet. The FBI also learned that right-wing extremists have created bogus law enforcement and diplomatic identifications, not because these radicals want to pretend to be police and ambassadors, but because they believe they hold these positions in a government that they have created within the United States. I mean, the whole sovereign citizen movement is, you know, what they're talking about here. These are very, very bizarre times in which we are living. And I think so much of this is coming out of this fundamental, you know, right wing view that we have to have strong authority figures, strong father figures in politics. And along with that comes guns. Tom in Yarrington, Nevada. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind? Well, first of all, I don't agree with either side, I think we got to meet in the middle because we're going to destroy this country if we can't work together. If you were in New York when these, uh, well, they call themselves Proud Boys, when they reenacted the murder of a Japanese socialist politician by way of political theater, like, hey, you know, here's how you murder a, a socialist politician at the same time that Donald Trump is out there talking about socialism is going to destroy this country. What would you do? What would you say to them? How do you make that happen? I don't know. It's real hard to convince somebody with no brains what's right. Well, I don't think these people are stupid. I think, you know, I think we dismiss them at our, at our own peril. I, I think some of them are probably very smart. Uh, you know, being, there's, there's not necessarily a relationship between being smart and being moral or even being thoughtful. Well, I, I guess that 
I, I try to think about things and what's right and what's wrong and what's the best thing to do and what's going to profit me and what's going to profit my kids and what's going to profit my country and what's going to profit my city, county, and state. And mm. I don't understand not thinking that way. Yeah. So, so you want the two, you want both sides to come together, but uh, respectfully, like to Tom, it doesn't, I, I'm not hearing uh, a, from you how that happens. I don't, I'll I don't tell know. you right now, I don't have an answer. I think that... I don't uh, you know, have an answer either, but it is a goal to work towards, and, they, and we got to develop the answers. Yeah. You know, we can't have our, our nation divided, you know, and people in two camps. It's going to destroy us. Well, I think, you know, our nation's been divided for most of its history in various ways, and, and the problem that we have right now is that we've got a president and a political party following him who are using that division as a political tool. And that's when it gets really, really dangerous. You, uh, Tom, we just have a minute to the break. You, you said you wanted to mention something about the Second Amendment. Yeah, um, I have a business and I carry a concealed firearm when I'm carrying money. Sure. And, and I, I think that's my right. Yeah, it is. So, I have no problem with that. To, de to, defend, to defend my money, yeah. To defend my property, it's that's part of the Constitution. I have the right to defend my property. Sure, sure. That's not literally what the Second Amendment says or why it was written, but you do have that right. And and yeah. you know most well, states it was written to defend our, uh, uh, to to fight our government to keep our government in line is why it was written. No, it, it definitely was not. There was not even a discussion of that at the Constitutional Convention. You can go back and read James Madison's notes. The main debate around the Second Amendment was that it originally said uh, in order to maintain the status of a free country or the, the security of a free country. Um, yeah. Uh, the, in the, other words, it's to keep from our country from going offline and being able. No, no, respectfully, no. Uh, that originally said free country. Patrick Henry, who is the largest slaveholder in the state of Virginia, objected because he was afraid that a national militia could demobilize the slave patrol in Virginia, which was the Virginia militia. It was also known as the slave patrol. The same was true in the state of Georgia. And so in order to satisfy Patrick Henry, James Madison changed the language to provide for the security of a free state. Tom, thanks for the call. Welcome back, 10 minutes before the hour. Warren in Seattle. Hey, Warren, what's on your mind? Yeah, Tom, uh, I really appreciate your show. I watch it a lot. I watch Democracy Now. I'm, I'm a left-wing guy. I vote for Democrats. I hear a uh, butt coming. Yes. Um, I just wanted to bring up another issue that's kind of unique to me. Um, when I was 20 years old, I was brutally beaten by two guys. And when I successfully sued them, Later, in 1974, I got a gun permit mm -hmm. to protect myself because they threatened me and... Well, that's why, we have, that's why we have, you know, concealed weapon uh, permits. And, you know, it's, I have no objection to uh, the state issuing a license to carry a concealed weapon to people who have passed some sort of, you know, reasonable and relatively rigorous background check. I got no problem with that, Warren. Okay, well, and... And then later, I don't think anybody has a problem with that. I, you know, the, the the problem that we have is that we're awash in guns, 
We have half the world's civilian guns in this country. We're 4% of the world's population. And we, and, have, and, I, and we have the highest rate of gun violence in the world. And it has nothing to do with concealed carry permits. It has to do with, you know, the fact that in most states, well, actually in every state now, I believe, you can walk into a gun show and buy a gun with no, you know, if it's, if it's considered a, quote, private transaction, uh, you know, there's no background check, there's no waiting period, there's no, there's no nothing. And, and we allow weapons of war to be carried on the streets of America. And, you know, no other civilized country does that. Which is, cra which is crazy, and I support getting rid of assault weapons and background checks. Yeah, just some rational gun control stuff. I mean, we had this for 10 years, and, and George W. Bush and the Republicans in 2005, when the, when the assault weapons ban expired, and it had actually measurably reduced gun violence in the United States, they said, ah, what the hell, we don't need to renew that. And, and all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but you know, now we're seeing more and more of these, particularly school shootings and mass murders, that are being done with, uh, you know, with these kinds of weapons. So, yeah, Warren, thank you for the call. I, you know, I get it. I get it. You know, some people need to carry a concealed weapon. That's not the issue here. Tomas in Rockford, Illinois. Hey, Tomas, what's up? Hey, what's up? Uh, to me, what I see the way things are going is the Republicans are going to turn and the oligarchs are going to turn uh, this country into a third world country. And, and, uh, to me, the division that's going on, you know, the Republican voters, the Republican people, I don't think there's, they're the problem. The problem is the Republican politicians. Yeah, well, at a they're certain the level, Tomas, depending on the metric you're using, we're already a third world country. 17% of us live in poverty. More than 50% of us can't sustain a $1,000 expense. Uh, in fact, more than 60% of us can't sustain a $1,000 uh, expense. We've got the, uh, a uh, infant mortality rate and a maternal mortality rate. You know, women dying in childbirth and pregnancy and, and uh, children dying in their first two years of life. Th those two death rates are right up there with third world countries. We are at the very, very bottom of the 34 OECD countries. So, you know, we're right on the edge of the transition from being a fully developed country to being a third world country. I, I, I just see, see things getting worse. And it's, you know, it's, it's the Republicans and these oligarchs that are just making things worse. That, that's it, about all I got to say. Yeah, well, I think you said it well. And this multi-trillion dollar transfer of wealth since 1980 and Reaganism brought us this. They complain about MS-13, but the Republican Party has, has been responsible, or at least their policies. For example, you know, refusing to ex expand Medicaid under uh, Obamacare, and John Roberts is complicit in this. The GOP has been responsible for a lot of deaths in the United States, a lot of deaths. I mean, Harvard University was estimating it at 40,000 a year or 24,000 a year after uh, Obamacare. Thank you. Excellent point. This uh, from Muggsy Rap Sheet, the Republican, <laughs> this the Republican death cult essentially is what it's titled. Pro-war, pro-gun, pro-death penalty, uh, voted against uh, denying guns to terrorists and the mentally ill, sowing the seeds of racial hatred, opposing food stamps for children, opposing health care for the poor, trying to close uh, women's health care clinics, opposing the peace deal with Iran denying climate change, disagreeing with the Pope on matters of religion. Yes, the Republican Party has done that. Disagree with scientists on matters of science, blowing up the Middle East, 
after starting an unnecessary war that has killed hundreds of thousands while injuring millions more, encouraging strip mining in the Canadian tar sands and drilling for oil in the Arctic Circle, opposing rebuilding our infrastructure to fix dangerous bridges and buildings, uh, or opposing basically anything to ensure a better future, all while pining for the second coming of Jesus, uh, it seems to me like the modern Republican Party has become a death cult. Jesse Ventura, uh, who I, you know, I know, I, Jesse, I worked with Jesse's son for years, and, and Jesse and I um, have had a few meals together, and he, he, he made this comment uh, some year, you know, a couple of years back. He said, you control our world. He's speaking to the, to the 1%, essentially. In fact, it's titled A Word to the 1%. You control our world. You've poisoned the air we breathe. You've contaminated the water we drink. You've copyrighted the food we eat. We fight in your wars. We die for your causes. We sacrifice our freedoms to protect you. You've liquidated our savings. You've destroyed our middle class. You've used our tax dollars to bail out your unending greed. We are slaves to your corporations, zombies to your airwaves, servants to your decadence. You've stolen our elections, assassinated our leaders, and abolished basic rights as human beings. You own our property. You've shipped away our jobs. You've shredded our unions. You've profited off of disaster, destabilized our currencies, raised our cost of living. You've monopolized our freedom, stripped away our education, and have almost extinguished our flame. We are hit. We are bleeding. But we ain't got time to bleed. We will bring the giants to their knees, and you will witness our revolution, Jesse Ventura. This is Senator Bernie Sanders. Yes, the system is rigged. Today, the top 1% owns 41.8% of the financial wealth of America. The bottom 60% owns all of 1.7%. In fact, the top one-tenth percent of Americans owns almost as much wealth as the bottom 90% of the American people. Meanwhile, since 1978, the cost of college tuition has increased by 1,000%, 1,120% to be precise. Medical care has increased by, again, since 1978, the cost of medical care has increased by 601%. Since 1978, just before Reagan, the cost of food has increased 244%. The cost of housing has gone up 380%. But since 1978, the typical worker's wage has gone up 10%. And among minimum wage workers, those in the bottom half of the, of the working scale, the typical pay has actually fallen by 5.5%. CEOs, however, have seen since 1978 an increase in their compensation of 937%. That's from the U.S. Labor Department and Bloomberg. I mean, you just kind of add all this stuff together and... and it's a, this insane, toxic brew where the right-wingers come into power. They, you know, in, in 1980 with the Reagan revolution, and it really was a revolution. We have to acknowledge that. They completely change our tax structure to benefit the very, very rich. They go on a war against unions to destroy people's right to basically have a decent job. And now we're wondering why we have social problems. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And an awful lot of these policies fell on the people who now are identifying as, you know, the hard right because, hey, we've got to do something. Yeah. Riduzone. If you struggle to lose weight, listen carefully. Riduzone works. I've never before endorsed a weight loss product, but I've seen the result firsthand with my brilliant wife, Louise, who, like so many, has had her share of diet frustrations. Losing weight is hard, right? Louise heard about Riduzone. She did her homework, learned it's FDA accepted, and that it helps us lose weight in a revolutionary way. 
Ridge's own comes out of university research that discovered a molecule that helps regulate appetite. When it's out of whack, we're always hungry and crave foods we shouldn't eat. And good luck losing weight when you're already starving on day one. Louise tried Ridge's own. She looks amazing. And I've never, never seen her this excited about a weight loss product. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription Riduzone. Go to tryriduzone.com and use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, to receive up to 65% off on your order and free shipping. That's tryriduzone.com, promo code TOM. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Cracking the Code, How to Win Hearts, Change Minds, and Restore America's Original Vision. This is from the introduction, page one. My wife Louise and I live atop 30 feet of water, 100 feet from shore, in a houseboat on a river in Portland, Oregon. Or at least we did when I wrote this book. One day, I stepped out our back door onto the floating deck that serves as our backyard and found myself confronting a very upset Canada goose. He bobbed his head up and down, lifted his wings to make his body look larger and more intimidating, and ran straight at me, hissing and trying to nip at me. Observing this behavior, my comedian friend Swami Beyond Ananda, Steve Behrman, who was visiting us that week, named the bird Gussolini. I had no idea why this psycho goose was attacking me, but there was no mistake that Gussolini was trying to communicate. Stay inside that house and don't come out. I got the message, but I didn't stay inside. Said every time I went out to water the plants on my deck, I brought a, a broom with me to fight off Gussolini. I found out what was going on a week later when I learned from my neighbor that a female goose had settled on her back deck, just a few feet from our own, and was sitting on a nest. I realized that Gussolini must have been the proud papa protecting his territory, and I stopped swatting at him with my broom. Gussolini has a lot to tell us about communication strategies. Even though he was just doing what a gander does when he wants a predator to leave, draw attention to himself and away from his mate, attack first and ask questions later, he was able to communicate the go-away part of his message to me pretty well. We all communicate all the time, even when we don't give much thought to what we are saying or how we're saying it. Because Gussolini was unable to use what we would call rational powers of persuasion, he communicated by going straight for the more primitive parts of my brain, the parts we shared as human and goose, the center of our gut feelings. First time Gussolini attacked, I backed off because he was successful in communicating an intent to harm me, which caused me to feel fear, the most primal and visceral of human emotions. The first key to unlocking the communication code is to understand that when we com communicate, Feeling comes first. Emotions will always trump intellect, at least in the short term. This emotive form of communication, however, ultimately didn't get Gussolini the response he wanted. On its own, the attack wasn't very persuasive. Instead of shooing me away, Gussolini made me angry. Effective communicators know how to get the response they want because they understand how to tailor a message to the person who's listening. They know the second key to unlocking the communication code is that the meaning of a communication is the response you get. Because Gussolini couldn't tell me his story, I had to imagine his story for myself. Uh, the first story I came up with was that he was simply a psycho goose, trying to harm me for no reason I could understand. The second story I came up with after talking to my neighbor was the story of a dad protecting his soon-to-be-hatched goslings. Both stories accurately described what was happening, but the stories led to very different endings. The psycho goose made me angry. The dad goose made me feel protective of Gussolini himself. In this book, I call such stories maps, and the world the stories describe as the territory. The third key to unlocking the communication code is, therefore, the map is not the territory. 
Each story captures a different piece of reality. No one story captures it all. The key to effective communication is to find the best story to use to convey your understanding of the world to the greatest number of people. In politics, we tell each other stories all the time. Think about it. Politics is really nothing more than a large set of stories. The United States of America began as a story that the founders and framers told about a society that could live in harmony around the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Everybody wants the best outcomes, and their behavior reflects the best tools they have to achieve those outcomes. Another way of saying this is that people always make what they think are the best choices given the circumstances and the tools they have. All behavior has, at its roots, the goal of a positive outcome. As a practical statement, this means that conservatives and liberals are both working toward the best world possible. And then it goes on from there. How do we differentiate this? How do we communicate this? Uh, the book is Cracking the Code. It's about the communication code. John Harvin here with you. I was uh, browsing through the news the other day, and I encountered an article by Pete Tucker on Counterpunch that just blew my mind. And, well, the headline, Partisan Pollsters Fail Black Progressive Candidates. And uh, I, I said to Sean, we got. I, I want to talk to this guy. I want to learn. You know, I want to share this with all of you. Pete Tucker's on the line with us. He's the he is the D.C. based uh, journalist, and uh, you know, with uh, Counterpunch, who is the author of this, his uh, website Pete-Tucker.com, and uh, you can tweet him at Pete Tucker. Uh, Pete, uh, just spelled like it sounds. Pete, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Well, we've seen in this Trump era that polls are not just failing, but they're failing black progressive candidates. Um, and it's not just that they're failing randomly. They're specifically failing to by undercounting their support in pretty dramatic ways. For, For example, example, Ayanna Presley, uh, a progressive city councilwoman in Boston, she challenged an incumbent uh, congressman in Democratic primary. She was predicted to lose by 13 points. She won by 18, a 31 point swing. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York, she also challenged an incumbent congressman. Uh, she was predicted to lose by 36 points. She won by 15, a 51-point swing. Stacey Abrams, and there's, and there's three candidates for governor, um, three black candidates for governor. Uh, this country, by the way, has elected two black governors in its history, and we have three Democratic nominees for governor. In Georgia, uh, Stacey Abrams, uh, the last poll had her winning by 20, but she won by over 50. Uh, maybe the most shocking one um, was Andrew Gillum in Florida. Uh, there were nine polls taken in the lead up to the Democratic primary. Eight of those polls had Gillum. He's a progressive African-American mayor of Tallahassee. Uh, eight of those polls had him coming in fourth. Uh, one of those polls had him coming in tied at third. Uh, Florida is the third largest state in the country. Uh, Gillum didn't finish fourth, didn't finish third. He won the nomination. Uh, those, the yeah, highest poll he had walked him at away with it. He walked away with it. The highest poll had him at 16%. Uh, most polls at 12%. And he finished at 34%. Yeah, yeah. So, so why is this, Pete? I mean, it, 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 the, the, uh, the kind of common sense, simple explanation seems to be that you know, minorities, my, minority communities have historically not been uh, as engaged in the voting process 
uh, as have white suburban communities, for example. And uh, now they're starting to get more engaged in that process, or they're not just starting. I mean, you know, through the Obama presidency, and whatnot, um, getting far more engaged. But they're not being polled, or is it that we're? I mean, is it that, or is it that the the, the polling is skewed toward basically white Democrats, white Republicans? I mean, what's going on? Why is this? Well, I I think what what happens is that, and I've been learning this as I go along because it it, it something's going on here. Yeah, and, and I don't see be, any good, clean research on this stuff. This is the kind of stuff that you would think Pew or Harvard would be all over. It would be helpful. Um, so it, a lot of the polling, there's different types, but it, it seems to be that all of it, most of it is based on uh, a fundamental guess, which is who's going to be a likely voter. And one of the strongest uh, indicators is what happened last election. And you're going to look at the, the last, um, you know, uh, uh, non-presidential election. So go back to 2014. Right. Well, in 2014, you had historic lows. Uh, in over 50 years, it was the lowest turnout, something like World War II. And so if you're going to use that as a base, a pre-Trump election, and then 2016, of course, President Trump is elected. And with all his venom towards women, towards minorities, to, to pretend that somehow that's a solid base, a, a pre-Trump election with the post-Trump is a little bit, I, I kind of see it a little bit like Rip Van Winkle in the sense that the pollsters t- took a 2014 election and then went up in the mountains and went to sleep like Rip Van Winkle and came on down not knowing that a revolution had taken place. Hmm. And I think there's a lot more energy than the polls are picking up among young voters, among non-white voters. And so that's my guess as to what's happening. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting, Tom, that it's, these polls aren't just failing. It's not random. They are consistently undercounting the vote, the support for progressive candidates of color. And this turns out to be far more problematic then it's just it's not just a mistake because there are real consequences right. to this. But they're not undercounting or missing progressive candidates who are white. Is that correct? Well, I, I have to look more carefully at that. I, I, it's not. It certainly it hasn't been as uh, stark. gross a, yeah. mis- a mistake, a stark, a stark uh, uh, disparity. Yeah, very interesting. Well, um, Pete, as, as you continue yeah. your research into this, would you would you keep us up to date? Yeah, and if I can make one more point, Tom. Please do so. Uh, um, this is problematic in and of itself, but it has the danger of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because when you tell voters um, that your candidate who you support has no shot at winning, then... As, by the way, the pollsters were speaking about Andrew Gillum in Florida, for example. For, right. And right now in Maryland, uh, yep. Ben Jealous, who the former leader of the NAACP. He was predicted to be neck and neck in the primary. Uh, he's the third black gubernatorial candidate. Um, and he won a landslide primary victory that none of the pollsters predicted. Right. And now the polls have him way down to the Republican um, and uh, Larry Hogan in a state, Maryland, that is two to one Democratic. Um, and when you put out into the media this powerful message that the candidate has no shot. It's not just voters. You know, voters are busy come election day. Uh, People have a lot of things to do. And if you tell people your candidate has no shot, they're more likely to stay home. 
and also donors. Yeah. Nobody wants to back a sure loser. Yeah. And so this is very dangerous. And this is why the Associated Press, in updating its AP style book earlier this year, it said, it said because polls are so often intoxicating for journalists, uh, that, that we are, the AP is updating its style book to, uh, with this word of caution to journalists. Poll results that seek to preview the outcome of an election must never be the lead, headline, or single subject of any story. Hmm. And yet, time and again, this is what we're seeing. Well, particularly on television. I mean, yeah, television, television news, I guess, is the worst of this, because they're always, oh, breaking news, here's the headline! You know, yeah, and it's all horse race stuff. True. They don't even talk about issues. They just talk about horse race and personality. And this not talking about issues is really significant, because you could poll on any number of things. Mm. But to keep polling on just how much you like the candidate, but not on the issues. It's, it's, it's not that they don't poll on the issues. It's much more uh, seldom, and it's not as prominently reported. Now, if you had an election here in Maryland on the issues, uh, for example, uh, $15 an hour minimum wage, 71% of Marylanders support that. And you go on down the list, and that's a central plank to Jealous's campaign. Right. But that's not what's discussed. It's discussed how popular Hogan is. And um, in my reporting, I've looked at the Washington Post, which is liked by many on the left, and because of its aggressive reporting on President Trump, and I'm all for that. But the Post, if you take away, if you take Trump out of the picture, uh, a nice thought, what exactly is it that the post is against. It's it is anti-labor an organization as they come. It's for every war, and it really exists to defeat candidates uh, that are progressive, that are pushing Medicare for all, and a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. Um, and, and I think you could say that of virtually all the major media. I think yeah. I haven't studied well. I think you could say certainly that certainly network television. I think you're right. Um, but the Post has been particularly pernicious um, in how it has given just the most favorable coverage to Hogan, saying he's bipartisan, he's moderate. You know, this is someone who was backed by the Koch brothers, who was with an organization, the Maryland Public Policy Institute, before coming to office that, ho- that had Koch donor support. Um, Another little detail that almost never makes it into the press. I, you know, no. the, the Koch brothers are dropping $300 million in this election. Shelley Adelson's, you know, got 10, 20, 30 million. I, I forget the number. Um, and, you know, they talk about, oh, gee, it looks like this race is tightening up. I wonder why. And nobody says, well, maybe it's tightening up because they just dropped $10 million into that state, you know, to, with slash and, slash and burn attack ads that in many cases are, are just plain old flat out lies. Yeah. And then the poll will say, well, how do you feel about this, that or the other rather than Right. reporting on what people actually want as, as far as where we go into the future. Um, so I think, this is, I think this is dangerous stuff. I think, uh, I think the pollsters are a little arrogant, too. I don't think they, they are really up to seeing what's coming. And I think the media has a much greater responsibility to, and I'm appreciative of the opportunity, Tom, to talk with you. I think you do a great job of bringing forward some of the issues that, that, that need to be discussed rather than just polling people on who likes who. What, what are the issues that are at stake here? Right. Well, that's, I, you know, I think that that's, you know, at the, at the, at the, 
at the core, at the, the essential core of everything. It has to be the issues. And that's where our media does so poorly because it's all reality. You know, the, the, the reality TV model is what's been embraced by, by news. So, you know, they sit around with a couple of pundits talking about something and everybody's opinionating, but they're not talking about the issues. They're talking about, yeah. you know, who likes who and who's up and who's down and what do you think? And, and it's just, you know, it drives me crazy watching talking heads on TV who are not even experts, right, in particular areas. I can understand having an expert on to explain something to somebody. You know, I want Neil deGrasse Tyson to be explaining astrophysics. But anyhow, Pete Tucker, thank you, Pete. Hang on just a second. To Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Pete's website is pete-tucker.com. His uh, article's over at Counterpunch, and you can tweet him at Pete Tucker. Thank you, Pete. Thank you so much, Tom. Good talking with you. Take one atom of nitrogen and bond it with one atom of oxygen, and boom, you just created nitric oxide, a miracle molecule your own body makes that fuels your cardiovascular health, keeping you vibrant. But as we all age, our bodies need help generating more natural nitric oxide. Super Beats by Human N has harnessed the power of nutrient-enriched beets and created a superfood that helps your body make more nitric oxide on its own. The core philosophy of Human N is to develop heart-healthy products for your body. One teaspoon of Superbeats daily supports your cardiovascular health and blood pressure levels, giving you natural energy without the need of a quick caffeine kick or sugar high. We're talking real. We're talking healthy, natural energy. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats and free shipping with your first purchase. Feel the 1 plus 1 equals boom effect of Superbeats. Call 800-568-9889 or go to tomsbeats.com today. Okay. Uh, This is from April 4th, 1944. And Henry Wallace was vice president of the United States. And he writes, this is an op-ed that was published in the New York Times on April 4th, 1944. He says, on returning... From my trip to the West in February, I received a request from the New York Times to write a piece answering the following questions. One, what is a fascist? Two, how many fascists have we here in America? Three, how dangerous are they? And then he answers those questions. In fact, the article, the title of the article is The Danger of American Fascism by Vice President Henry Wallace. He says, the really dangerous American fascists are not those who are hooked up directly or indirectly with the Axis, would be Germany and Japan. The FBI has its finger on those. The American fascist would prefer not to use violence. His method is to poison the channels of public information. With a fascist, the problem is never how best to present the truth to the public, but how best to use the news to deceive the public into giving the fascist and his group more money or power. American fascism will not be really dangerous until there is a purposeful coalition among the cartelists, the deliberate poisoners of public information, and those who stand for the KKK type of demagoguery. Are we there yet? Still another danger, Vice President Wallace wrote, still another danger is represented by those who pay lip service to democracy and the common welfare. In their insatiable greed for money and the power which money gives, do not hesitate surreptitiously to evade the laws designed to safeguard the public from monopolistic extortion. The symptoms of fascist thinking, Henry Wallace wrote, are colored by environment and adapted to immediate circumstance, but always and everywhere they can be identified by their appeal to prejudice and by the desire to play upon the fears and vanities of different groups of people 
in order to gain their own power. It is no coincidence that the growth of modern tyrants has in every case been heralded by the growth of prejudice. Are you listening to the words of the Vice President of the United States in 1944? The American fascists are most easily recognized by their deliberate perversion of truth and fact. Their newspapers and propaganda carefully cultivate every fissure of disunity, every crack in the common front against fascism. Are you starting to think about Fox so-called news and right-wing hate radio? They use every opportunity to impugn democracy. They use isolationism as a slogan to conceal their own selfish imperialism. They cultivate hate and distrust. They claim to be super patriots, but they would destroy every liberty guaranteed by our Constitution. They demand free enterprise, but they are the spokesman for monopoly and vested interest. Their final objective, toward which all of their deceit is directed, is to capture enough political power so that, using the power of the state and the power of the market simultaneously, they may keep the common man in eternal subjection. We all know the part that the cartels played in, in uh, bringing Hitler to power and the rule the giant German trusts have played in Nazi conquests. Monopolists who fear competition and who distrust democracy because it stands for equal opportunity would like to secure their position against small and energetic enterprise. In an effort to eliminate the possibility of any rival growing up, some monopolists would sacrifice democracy itself. We must not tolerate oppressive government or industrial oligarchy in the form of monopolies and cartels. And what do we have now? Literally every industry, every industry in America is now controlled by, uh, you know, you could call it a monopsony. Basically, that's where the buyers have maximum power rather than the sellers, um, so they control the marketplace. But uh, I would say there, there are many monopolies, right? I mean, you got, you know, basically in the airline business, you got three, four, five airlines in the pharmaceutical industry. You have a half a dozen pharmaceutical companies that control, you know, in each case, they control anywhere from 65 to 90 percent of the market, right? That, that's a functional monopoly in, in uh, processed foods, in, in the growing, uh, you know, the raw material foods, in, uh, you know, hog operations, uh, you know, the, some of the largest ones are not even American, they're Chinese-owned, um, you know, cattle operations, you know, electronics, computing, the internet, your television network, I mean, you, you pick it, right? Pick anything, pick any area, toothpaste. I mean, you know, whatever it may be, what you will find is that the vast majority of the market is now monopolized and that these corporations are feeding the politicians who keep their monopolies intact, which would be, by and large, the Republican Party, which, by the definitions of Henry Wallace, the vice president of the United States in 1944, means that it has become a fascist party. Is it time to start using the F word, fascism, aggressively to define these guys? And without hyperbole, without exaggeration, just say, okay, this is exactly what Henry Wallace was talking about. Daryl in Danville, New Jersey. Hey, Daryl, what's up? Hey, how's it going, Don? Good. What's on your mind? Going back to the death of this journalist in Turkey in the Saudi embassy. Right. Mr. Khashoggi. You know, 
you recall back in September of 2016 when James Woolsey quit? Yeah, he quit, and he was the one that informed the FBI that Flynn was planning with the Turks to uh, with Futula Gulen, the, the cleric that lives in the Poconos. He oh, yeah. To, I remember that now. Yes. For, for $15 million, he was going to whisk him back to... And you know what You know what Erdogan was going to do with that cleric? Oh, I'm guessing he was going to put him on trial and kill him. He was going to put him on trial and kill him for uh, because he said he was uh, involved in planning that coup. Right. And so it's real rich for me to hear Turkey pointing the finger at, at Saudi Arabia. And, and also... Anybody who thinks for a second that Donald Trump did not know that this was going to happen is smoking something. Well, I want to know what happened in the phone call that uh, the MBS, the, the, the guy who's running Saudi Arabia, had two days before this happened with Jared Kushner. You know, the last well, time these guys were together, they were up until four o'clock in the morning, two nights in a row, you know, smoking or drinking or just whatever they were doing and, you know, plotting how to rule the world. These two young 30 something princes, basically. And almost immediately after that, and there's large, widespread speculation now, uh, including among people in the intelligence community, that Jared Kushner shared classified information with MBS about people in his own family and court who were not entirely loyal to him because he went on a purge and some people died and some people lost all their money or large chunks of their money and everybody was scared to death. And then the Jared Kushner has another phone call with him and two days later, you got this Washington Post journalist is slaughtered. And somehow Jared Kushner is no longer upside down on his Manhattan property. Right. And I mean, this is the problem with having corrupt leaders. They are so easily blackmailed. Even if Trump wanted to say something to the Saudis, by now I'm sure they have so much crap on him. There's nothing. There's nothing he can threaten them with. Well, and they're and they're funding his family. I mean, the Trump crime family is uh, for the last decade or so has been, you know, growing. Whether it's the Kushner branch of it or the or the Ivanka Don Eric branch of it, and, and, and Donald has been growing based on on money from you know by and large uh, fairly autocratic regimes all around the world. Daryl, I got to run, but thank you for the call. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport, as Mr. Obama used to tell us, as Mr. Sanders used to tell us, as, as so many people, as Hillary Clinton used to tell us. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.